0: Leading saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning.
1: Hello and welcome to my study. Come in, have a seat. Don't mind the leaves, just our little nod to Autumn. Wilkinson spread them over the floor just last week. This is Wilkinson, my valet. How do you do? He assists with the show, uh, gathers our source materials from around the study, and reads any directly quoted passages in this little endeavor. So I... Just ignore it. I swear he's timing these calls to interfere with our recording. Perhaps we should start over. What's the point? Our last episode was already garbage with all this airing of dirty laundry and disruptive messages. I don't even like these opening bits, but, you know, podcasts are supposed to have what they call spontaneity. And, well, that's what we have right now. Pure chaos with the phone ringing and you shuffling through leaves and our guests just sitting here all gap-mouthed and confused. That's spontaneity. That really sells the show. I could just sweep up the leaves Now, just to catch everyone then... up, the problem at hand... I'm just... An acquaintance of mine is repeatedly calling a Paul Kudinaris. He's, uh, I don't know, eccentric, obsessed with mummies and cats. And he gave me this mummified cat, Hello. gave it to me, to me as a gift. But now he's Please claiming it he was a loan. Hey, Al, it's me. Being quite consistent every day. Oh, please, you gotta get that thing back to me, okay? Don't mess around (laughs) with it. You know, that thing is really old. It shouldn't even be out of a glass case. Stop screwing around. Get that thing back to me. Spontaneous. Uh, Here we have it. It's spontaneity. It's a mess. And we have a slack jawed guest sitting here, so the listener he can feel symbolically included. And I'm look at me, I'm expressing feelings, so they can't say it's without feeling. Uh, So we have We have spontaneity. We have intimacy of feeling. Uh, What else could a podcast even need? Chemistry. Chemistry, spontaneity, feeling, intimacy. uh, Pretty much completes it. I may as well not bother with any chatter about seances. We're done. There's your Patreon, sir.
0: You wanted me to remind you to mention it?
1: (sighs) You know... Actually, a glass case wouldn't be a bad idea. It would save me from dusting. Yeah. Why don't you call him back after the show and see if he knows anyone who makes those? Certainly. Episode 12, Seances and Scandals. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Breidenour, Our topic for Bone and Sickle is, of course, the intertwining of horror and folklore and with a little history on the side often. Um, I started this all as a way to further explore material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as uh, to further investigate topics I'm researching for another project. I do need to remind listeners about Patreon. This is our sole support uh, for these shows, I suppose, giving you three episodes this month is my attempt to sweet talk you all a little into considering some level of support. It starts at $1 a month. Uh, More on that all later at the end of the episode. Um, This episode, which continues uh, the story of spiritualism from our last one, uh, requires perhaps a bit of a parental advisory. uh, Why we'll be talking largely about the Victorian and Edwardian era, where you wouldn't expect to things to be at all indelicate. There are some exceptions, uh, and with the uh, wild 1920s, which we'll be getting into, there are a few kind of rather somewhat graphic details of a sexual nature, so delicate ears be warned. In our last episode, we talked about the Fox sisters, who in 1848 set off this uh, mania for talking to the dead when they claimed to be channeling the spirit of a dead peddler murdered in their home. Uh, they continued performing as mediums into the 1880s, but it seems the strain of their youthful stardom and uh, the constant touring uh, had not been an easy road for them. Already by uh, 1851, an associate had uh, produced a signed statement alleging that she conspired with uh, Kate and Margaret Fox to covertly signal them during census with information obtained in advance uh, about the sitters. Um... Kate had developed a drinking problem also, and uh, thanks to Margaret's newfound attraction to Catholicism, uh, she was also uh, suggesting that this work might not be for her any longer. So, in 1888, the whole adventure, which had been teetering on the brink, I suppose, for a while, came to a screeching halt. Before an audience of some 2,000 people at the New York Academy of Music... Margaret admitted that the peddler's wrappings had been a hoax, something produced by cracking the joints in her toes, a peculiar ability shared with her sister. She even demonstrated the effect with the doctor on stage, verifying the source of the sound produced. The eldest sister, Leah, never in the limelight like Kate and Margaret, um, lived until 1890, but Kate died in 1892 and her sister the following year. They both had renounced spiritualism and ended their lives in abject poverty. Well, all this is very sad. Vincent Price, dear, Vincent Price is here to cheer you, returning with more of that 1979 radio series Hall of Horrors episode about the foxes.
0: But in 1904, years after the Fox sisters were dead, they made headlines again. Their farm had been sold and it was being torn down when, between two stone walls, a skeleton was found. On November twenty-third,
1: 1904, the Boston Journal printed this story.
2: The skeleton of a man, supposed to have caused the rapping first heard by the Fox sisters in 1848, has been found in the walls of the house formerly owned by the sisters.
1: The Boston Journal story is here accurately quoted, but Oddly, the discovery of the bones was a bit creepier than described. It was made by school children playing in the ruins of what was once the basement of what was locally known as the Spook House. In their games, they exposed the bones, knocking a hole in a crumbling wall, which was later presumed, rightly or not, to be a false wall erected Edgar Allan Poe style to hide the body of the murder victim. Also said to be discovered in 1904 was a tin Peddler's Pack, which is now displayed at the Museum of the Lilydale Spiritualist Retreat in upstate New York. Given that the Fox sisters' hoaxing confession was never mentioned in this newspaper account, it's an oddly skewed story, and for the record, skeptics today dispute some or much of this bones story, but uh, it's October and we don't want to argue with a good ghost story. Even while psychical researchers and mainstream scientists were parting ways, new technologies of the time seemed, uh, to some, to promise a happy union of science and spiritualism. I've uh, mentioned spirit photography arriving on the scene in the 1860s, but uh, that's a visual medium, of course, and doesn't lend itself really to a podcast. But uh, thankfully, we have audio, radio, and recording technologies... (laughs) That seemed at the time to promise spirit contact. This always unsettling children's prayer about death was even more unsettling when put in the mouths of dolls in 1890. This uh, early miniaturized application of Thomas Edison's phonograph was one of the inventor's rare failures. Its production was burdensome, as each doll's internal phonodisc had to be individually recorded by one of the uh, 18 now long-dead factory workers screaming into the devices to cut the discs. The dolls were too large and heavy, and quite possibly terrifying to parents and children alike. But what of Edison's legendary experiments in talking to the dead. Well, skeptics will readily cite a 1920 interview in American Magazine in which Edison mentions working on a spirit phone, uh, a quote Edison later disowned in a 1926 New York Times article explaining,
0: I really had nothing to tell him, but I hated to disappoint him, so I thought up this story about communicating with spirits. But it was all a joke.
1: But it seems there was more to it than that. More rarely mentioned is Edison's interview in Scientific American, given in the same month and year as the uh, American Magazine interview, October 1920, in which Edison says,
0: I have been thinking for some time of a machine or apparatus which could be operated by personalities which have passed on to another existence or sphere.
1: His view may not have been the traditionalist spiritualist view, as He expresses doubt about the survival of individual consciousness, uh, adding,
0: I do hope that our personality survives. If it does, then my apparatus ought to be of some use. That is why I'm now at work on the most sensitive apparatus I have ever undertaken to build, and I await the results with the keenest of interest.
1: So one might infer from all this that this notion had progressed beyond a backburner idea or... A note or two on paper, the author of the piece seems to suggest a prototype may have actually been built. Something was actually in the works, concluding,
0: The apparatus which he is reported to be building is still in the experimental stage.
1: Two years later, the dream of such a device seemed to be in the air as uh, evidenced by the 1922 song made famous by Irving Kaufman, I wish there was a wireless to heaven. Yet some would have said we already had a suitable device for such communication in the phonograph. Edison's recording machine was along for the ride when Russian anthropologist Vladimir Bogoras visited Siberia in 1901. During his stay, Bogoras studied shamanic practices of the Chukchi tribe and ended up recording a session during which the shaman channeling a wolf spirit lapsed into a trance. In notes made after the session, he writes,
0: When the light was extinguished, the spirits appeared after some hesitation, and following the wishes of the shaman, spoke into the horn of the
1: phonograph. Pagoras believed the recording included voices of entities not physically present in the tent, making it, for some, the first recording of voices from the spirit world. Jumping forward a bit, something similarly strange happened in 1959 to Swedish film producer, painter and musician, Friedrich Jurgensen. After returning from a day in the field recording bird songs, Jurgensen was playing back tapes when he detected a barely audible voice in the background, which seemed to be speaking the phrase... Bird voices in the night. Rolling through the tape with an ear now tuned to the background... Another voice came to him, that of his late mother, faintly uttering the phrase. This sent Jurgensen into a frenzy of recording and analysis of more tapes, and the discovery of countless other hidden voices. Nummer By 1963 he had called an international press conference to share his discoveries. This was followed in 1964 by the publication of his book, Voices from the Universe, followed in 1967 by another, Radio Contact with the Dead. You are hearing tapes from the compilation of his studies between 1959 and 1977 called from the studio of audioscopic research and, as Jorgensen would have us believe, the voices of the dead.
0: In
2: 1967,
1: Konstantin Radve, a Latvian professor and student of Carl Jung, teaching at the University of Uppsala in Sweden, visited Jorgensen in his workshop. Initially skeptical of the work, Rodeve began his own experiments, eventually discovering hidden voices of his own, including, of all things, that of his own dead mother. Rodeve's uh, otherworldly voices followed their own otherworldly rules, speaking telegraphically, often a mix of German, Latvian, Swedish, sometimes French, and often mixing together languages in a single utterance. There are
0: examples chosen to give the reader a breakthrough, an acoustic illustration of the material presented in the book. A
1: year later, Rodove had published The Inaudible Becomes Audible, and in 1974, it came out in English, along with uh, a record of the samples you were hearing uh, under the uh, title Breakthrough.
0: speech... Jorgensen and Radeve are are
1: considered by many pioneers in the field of electronic voice phenomenon, EVP, so popular with today's uh, modern ghost hunters. I'll be including samples of their work as a bit of atmosphere, perhaps with a bit of my own remixing and effects, and uh, I will have uh, links to their recordings on the website.
2: A Latvian voice then breaks in with a statement that could be interpreted in various ways. It might mean, for instance, that the voice phenomenon research may benefit mankind, even if the process is a painful one. Tu laudes zadecina. Latvian, you are burning people.
1: But back to those early spiritualists. Eva Carriere was a French medium in the first decades of the 20th century whose seances were avidly documented by a number of investigators. She began her career among French colonialists living in Algeria, but most of her mediumistic work was in Paris, where she lived with Alexandre Bisson and his wife Juliette, with whom, it's often assumed, she carried on a lesbian affair. Accounts of her ectoplasmic manifestations make for bizarre reading. The French psychical researcher Gustave Gallet recounts a detail from a séance in 1921.
0: After an hour's wait, Eva began her moaning, which became more pronounced. A white spot appeared on her left shoulder. This spread and thickened, and in the middle of it, you could see a small face like that of previous sittings. At the same time, the greater part of the amorphous substance disappeared. Only a small mass was perceptible, which moved to Eva's chest, and there remained fixed as by a kind of stalk proceeding from the right side of the mouth of the materialized face.
1: And from another 1921 séance, a strange manifestation.
0: A tiny, nude woman, beautifully formed, apparently alive and who moved her limbs. Her size changed rapidly. Eva took her and placed her on the hands of Madame Besson... Where she remained about 10 seconds, long enough for those present to verify that she seemed alive.
1: This, according to Carrier's presumptive partner, Juliette, who perhaps was not always the most reliable source. Photographs from the sessions were not quite as impressive. The ectoplasmic manifestations are readily recognizable as cheesecloth. A watered around uh, what looks like flat faces apparently, cut from magazines or newspapers, sometimes even with the folds visible. Um, one which may have been accidentally turned backwards even shows a bit of type from the masthead of the uh, Paris newspaper Le Miroir. Despite all this, sitters and researchers still flocked to Carrière's, uh seances and it's very possible the charged erotic atmosphere was a factor. It's well documented that Carrier often performed her seances nude, and you can find photos of her emerging from her spirit cabinet wearing little more than a few strings of ectoplasm. The rationale for all this was something to do with clothing forming a uh, barrier to spirit energies. Investigators, on the other hand, were pleased that a nude medium had relatively few options for hiding uh, fake ectoplasm or props. Of course, there still were ways for a naked woman to hide things and so gynecological and rectal inspections were therefore part of the program. Carrier's partner, Juliette, or the German physician and psychical investigator, Albert Freiherr von uh, performed these uh, examinations before seances. And there's also a mention of Carrier herself demanding an inspection after the event, which seems odd, uh, oddly gratuitous, and uh, perhaps in keeping with the medium's uh, perverse or lusty reputation. Juliet Pisson also uh, sent Schrenknotzing uh, letters luridly documenting other ...curious ectoplasmic shenanigans.
0: On expressing a wish, the medium parted her thighs... ...and I saw that material assumed a curious shape... ...resembling an orchid... ...decreased slowly and entered the vagina. During the whole process, I held her hands. Eva then said, wait. We will try to facilitate the passage. She rose, mounted on the chair and sat on one of the armrests, her feet touching the seat. Before my eyes, and with the curtain open, a large spherical mass about eight inches in diameter emerged from the vagina and quickly placed itself on her left thigh while she crossed her legs. I distinctly recognized in the mass a still unfinished face whose eyes looked at me.
1: Unseemly as it may be, this preoccupation with mediums' private parts, or at least the private areas under dresses, is uh, a feature of spiritualist investigations, as uh, most mediums were female. One well-known medium who would not allow such uh, intimate inspections was uh, Mina Crandon, or Marjorie, the name most of her circle used. The wife of a well-to-do Boston surgeon and socialite, Crandon was considered rather attractive with her blue eyes and bottle-blonde bob, and she was playfully dubbed the Blonde Witch of Lime Street. Uh, She also was known to perform seances nude, perhaps covered by a thin kimono or occasionally wearing nothing more than a bit of luminous powder highlighting her breasts. She was known for channeling her dead brother, Walter, who would occasionally manifest an ectoplasmic extension from the vicinity of Crandon's groin. This uh, teleplasmic hand, as it was known, was photographed on Crandon's exposed thigh and on the seance table and touched by certain sitters who described it as feeling dead. However, when researchers obtained the hand for a closer inspection, it was determined that it was nothing but a conglomeration of animal liver and trachea stitched together, many assumed, by her surgeon husband. The central drama of Crandon's career came in 1924, when she was nominated as the candidate for a $2,500 prize offered by Scientific America to any medium who could provide visual proof of mediumship. A committee of researchers was dispatched to study Crandon, and when a Scientific America employee, Malcolm Byrd, leaked news suggesting the group might be leaning toward awarding Crandon the prize, famous debunker Harry Houdini took to the radio accusing Byrd himself of being an accomplice in a con. It was suggested that Byrd might have conspired with Crandon in return for sexual favors. The medium seances were, after all, a goldmine of rumors about a nude medium tumbling into the laps of male sitters. Uh, but uh, Crandon uh, denied any such possibility, publicly declaring Byrd, Disgusting looking. She did, however, admit to an affair of several months' duration with a researcher on the committee, Harrowind Carrington, and the investigators ended up arguing themselves into a deadlock, and no prize was awarded. Crendon was not pleased. Nor was Walter. During one seance, the churlish spirit hurled abuse.
0: Houdini, you goddamn son of a bitch. I put a curse on you now that will follow you every day for the rest of your short life.
1: Later adding,
0: Houdini will be gone by Halloween.
1: And, as it turns out, he was. On October 31st, 1926, the magician died of septic poisoning from a ruptured appendix.
2: Again, we hear Margareta Petrowski's voice, this time calling her former employer, Dr. Zenta Maurina. Zenta!
1: I have two last stories about spiritualists called from the newspapers of the 1920s. The first is from a 1921 edition of the Pittsburgh Press. It begins with the loss of the couple's infant during birth, the child of Ada and William Robbins, who lived on a little farm in Iowa. Ada is left in a particularly hopeless state of grief. One day, James Wheeler, a hired hand on the Robbins' farm, approaches the husband, mentioning that his wife is a spiritualist, who, as it turns out, has bumped into the infant on the other side. Seances begin promptly, with the medium providing vague yet comforting answers as to the baby's uh, happy state in the afterlife. Eventually, the medium suggests that, with adequate faith, the baby might return in mortal form. So begins a rigorous period of spiritual training, during which Ada engages in long weeks of fasting and prayer. Mrs. Wheeler announces that only in Chicago can she prepare herself properly for assisting in this miraculous uh, feat. She relocates, but keeps Ada informed of her progress through a series of letters, finally reporting...
0: My spirit has been suspended for six days, and I believe that I am fit for the supreme materialization. My body is turning green, and the spirits tell me that this greatest of miracles will soon come to pass.
1: I'm not sure about the green, but uh, Wheeler finally announces the date is at hand, issuing instructions on how the Robins must prepare. They are to fill their home with flowers, don white robes and, on the evening of the event itself, leave the kitchen door ajar. The night of the great event, Ada sits up in bed, her heart pounding as she listens for every sound of the night wind. And then it comes. It
0: was, it was the, the kitchen, kitchen door, door swinging open, inch, inch by inch. One rusty inch hinge caused a familiar creaking, succeeded by a, by a faint silken swish, swish in the pitch blackness of the staircase. Swish, swish, swish. The silken rustle slowly ascended the stairs. She raised up in bed, her teeth chattering. At last, she discerned a pinpoint of phosphorescent blue in the doorway. It grew larger. Very slowly, it took the shape of a human form. It seemed to float toward the bed. The face was featureless. Only a patch of shadow. As the luminous blue figure drew silently nearer, it was apparent to the trembling mother that it carried something in its arms. It was a baby, wrapped in soft white flannel.
1: Yes, this is all in the newspaper. Um, The baby not only looks like her child, but has the same tiny defect on the tongue. Uh, Ada is hysterical with joy, and soon word spreads throughout the neighborhood, with hundreds of visitors passing through the Robin's home to see the mysterious spirit baby. When Mrs. Wheeler returns from Chicago, she is infuriated by the visitors and orders the house closed. Her rationale...
0: The spirit child was composed of ethereal atoms, which rapidly decompose at the human touch. There are spiritual powers who are angry at the child's return to life. They will lose no opportunity to snatch it back. And if enough humans touch it, the baby will dissolve again into ether.
1: Hereafter, Wheeler asserts tighter control over the Robins. She, her husband, daughters, and two friends are to take up residence in their home. The Robins then are told the spirits want them to sell their farm and move to California. When Walter hesitates, the medium... Warns again about those fragile, ethereal atoms dissolving. And so, Walter complies, even buying new automobiles to move them all west. But before leaving, he asks friends to do a bit of investigation on the Wheelers. Reports soon arriving in California begin to clarify matters. It turns out, a friend of Mrs. Wheeler had recently given birth to a baby, placing it in an orphanage, from which it had disappeared shortly before the big resurrection. Mr. Wheeler had also been observed meeting passengers from a Chicago train on that miraculous night. The luminous figure, of course, could have been more than a confederate in glowing paint and muslin. Later, Mrs. Robbins, while out shopping with Mrs. Wheeler in California, notices the medium purchasing a half dozen cheap necklaces. Wheeler admits that Guests expect necklaces to be materialized at an upcoming seance, and that the strain of doing so by spirit alone can sometimes just be too much. So when the Robins figure it all out, they do manage to break from the wheelers, but decide to officially adopt the spirit baby anyway. As Ada says,
0: If my baby really is the child of another woman, I would rather it be so. I'm satisfied because I don't want to think I am raising a spook that will fly out the window if anything goes wrong.
2: Then, in Swedish and German, Du sowas willst nicht Glaube. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. sleeping. You do not want
1: <noise> <entreprises noise> <mana> <Jahr Built> okay. now, uh, to run, not to you not want not to you not to run, not want run, not to run, not to run, not to run,
0: it was a few weeks ago that the Countess, the wife of Horace Wilford Lord, who was a teacher of languages in a Boston school, was found dead in her villa at Nice, with the hilt of the jeweled dagger sticking out of her breast.
1: As it turns out, the Countess Maria Amélie Vernet Lord had recently married a gentleman from Boston, but it quickly ended up back in France after life in America had not proven satisfying. Uh, though the husband normally would have been suspected here, the police took no interest in him as they had already obtained a confession from uh, one Count de Kluptel, a former officer of the Russian Imperial Guard. His confession, however, provided no motive. As he told the gendarmes,
0: There's no use asking me why I did it. I don't know. I remember nothing.
1: Stranger still, the husband implored the police to drop the charges, saying,
0: In the name of God and in the memory of my dear wife, have pity on poor Wenceslaus de Klopfel.
1: No motive or even link between de Klopfel and the slain Countess could be found, except one. They had both been members of a spiritualist circle the Countess had joined around 1920. According
0: to members of the circle, the countess had told the medium that she felt some powerful force disturbing her peace of mind. It was as though, she said, some dear friend or lover were calling to her from the spirit world.
1: The medium suggested she make contact so the countess could uh, meet this uh, entity. What happened next is recalled by one of the sitters at the seance.
0: The medium's head had dropped upon her arms. Then a mist began to form about her. Amelie watched intently. Suddenly, eyes staring in terror, she jumped to her feet. The mist had thickened into a shape. There stood a huge and hairy man, an ape man with beetling brows, retreating forehead, and a brutal head crowned with a bush of coarse hair. There was a malignant desire in its eyes. And as it stretched its long arms out to her, Amelie wrenched her hands away from those in the circle that held them. The circle was broken, and the figure blurred and vanished.
1: After this, the Neanderthal, whom the medium identified as Ajax, became a regular nuisance in the circle.
0: He waved his arms and thumped his chest and made grimaces. Nobody could understand what he was trying to say, but clearly he wanted Amelie and was always angry and threatening because she wouldn't understand what he was trying to tell her.
1: And thus it was concluded by the members of the Circle that, wanting the Countess for himself and enraged at her marriage, Ajax had possessed de Kluppel to kill the Countess and sent her to join him on the other side. The theory goes even a bit more out on a limb, noting that the Countess was the most recent of 13 sudden or difficult-to-explain deaths among members of the wedding party. Number 12, according to the story, was in fact
0: Isadora Duncan. The Dancer, whose tragic death is is still fresh in the minds of readers.
1: The Dancer's death, for those who might not know, was a particularly notorious example of cruel happenstance. Her dramatically flowing scarf was famously caught in the spokes of her roadster, breaking her neck. Oddly, the Ajax theory falls apart a bit, as the groom, who would be the most obvious target for this, uh, jealousy was not killed or at least he had not died at the uh, time the story was published but well that was 1928 and by now it's safe to assume her husband has died ajax has been avenged and the countess has joined her neanderthal suitor in the afterlife
0: it is the spirit of houdini we wish to contact houdini are you here are you here houdini Please
2: manifest yourself in any way possible. Though
1: spiritualism survived the hoax confessions of the foxes and the scandals of the 1920s, on Halloween 1936, long past its heyday, spiritualism died yet another small death. This was the final year Harry Houdini's widow Bess held a public seance attempted to contact the magician. Houdini had always promised that uh, should he die first, he would contact Bess. But after his death, this suggestion was no longer bound up in the idea of debunking spiritualism. A distraught Bess had begun holding annual seances on the Halloween anniversary of this death, uh, hoping, against hope, that the deceased magician would greet her with the secret code known by only her and her husband. By 1936, there had been nine annual seances bearing no fruit. We have a recording of the final attempt of that final year, uh, its conclusion.
2: I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry.
1: As the doors to the shrine to her husband were closed, it's reported, rain began to fall from the clear night sky. Particularly in the desert climate of Los Angeles, it was a strange and sad coincidence, and the end of a ghostly era. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our shows, and... We'll continue listening to future episodes. Uh, Shows are uploaded on Mondays, usually two a month, depending on the month. Our next show, October 29th, looks at some rather frightful rites of necromancy practiced in classical antiquity. Please do like and uh, share and comment whenever and wherever you can. Uh, Reviews are particularly helpful and uh, important, actually, for the continuance of this show. Links to our Facebook group and Twitter, along with show notes, replete with images and video links to music used in the background can be found on our website, boneandsickle.com. You can also find our donor link there. Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, Uh, Show soundscapes, what you hear behind my voice each episode, and uh, my Krampus book, as well as an 8x10 signed photo of Wilkinson, suitable for any sort of adulation you choose. Your donation in any amount does help me continue the show as a bi-monthly release. Thanks to all who do support the podcast, uh, especially our latest batch of patrons on uh, Patreon, uh, Cameron A. McCormick, Gemma Stewart, Brett... McDaniel and Mike Norton the show is written and produced by me Al Ridenour Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher thanks so much for listening